Welcome to Extraordinary People, the podcast that highlights people who inspire others, have made significant contributions to the world, or who have overcome adversity. This show is hosted by Shirley Bogtel, author, educator, wife, mother, and grandparent. Learn more and subscribe today at ShirleyWachtel.com. And now, here's my grandma, Shirley Wachtel. Welcome to this episode of Extraordinary People. Today, um, I'm speaking with someone whom I've known very well, and as a matter of fact, all of his life. Um, this is someone who is a writer of screenplays and in fact, uh, the winner of an Academy Award for Best Screenplay for Black Klansman in 2019. Um, it's a little bit awkward for me speaking to my son, Charlie Wachtel, but it's a great deal of personal pride here. So welcome, Charlie. Thanks. Thanks, Mom. It's more <laughs> awkward for me, to be I'm clear. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. Okay, so... Um, First of all, um, tell me about, um, because there's a lot of people out there listening who would love to be sitting in your position. Tell me um, what has inspired you going back to maybe when you were in high school to go into a field that is contains so many risks nowadays. Yeah, I mean, when I was in high school, I uh, was very politically active. Um, I did, you know, model UN and model Congress and uh, constitutional law challenge and all these things. And then by the time I, you know, it was time to pick a major, I'd kind of got through with all that and didn't want to have to go through with it again. And so I decided to, you know, go with my creative uh, instincts and explore that and see where it would take me. Do you, um, certainly you, you're someone with a great deal of talent, but do you credit anybody along the way um, it, who's either been an inspiration to you or a mentor to you in your particular field? Besides my parents? No. <laughs> of course, of course, saying all the right things. Um, who do you look up to? Like what? Why did you want to do this? Because I know you've you've been interested in this for as long as I can remember. You made home movies, uh, um, kind of imitations, taking on certain scenes from uh, popular films, and um, so so. What? Who has inspired you, for example, as a filmmaker? Is there a particular teacher that you've had? Um. I wouldn't say a teacher necessarily, just I think the the idea of the lifestyle and not wanting to sit in an office or sit in a courtroom and, uh, you know, doing something that I can get excited to go to work every single day, even if going to work means not actually going anywhere. Mm -hmm. And you've always loved films. Yeah, not always. Uh, I mean, I... I think when I was 13, I went to Universal Studios for the first time. That kind of changed my opinion um, a little bit in the sense that I knew that there was a business uh, behind the films that were being made. And and that was something that had really sparked my interest. 
Okay. So um, you went on to American University, and I know that you took a semester at FAMU. And can you tell us what that was like and um, what you learned there? I know you created a, a film. Um, we went out there and visited you and uh, and uh, we're really excited to see about this uh, short film that you created. So tell us what that was like. First off, I hope nobody has to see that film. Uh, it's it's We liked so- it. <laughs> I mean, it it is what it is, but you know, it's great because you get to shoot on sixteen millimeter in that country. But uh, you know, the limitations are such that you know you can only shoot on two rolls of film if you for every person that's in your group. And for me, it was just uh, one other person and myself, uh, so it didn't leave a whole lot of room for making errors, and you didn't really have the opportunity to get coverage for everything that you were filming. Uh, but it was a good experience. Um, you know, it, it actually, you could cast the project, you could produce the project, you worked with real Czech producers, and it kind of gave you the full experience of, of what it means to put together a movie. Okay, and then you um, took the program, you went on with the program at American and graduated, and then you made a very bold move. And uh, you went out to L.A. on your own. Um, I think never having driven on a highway before, you went and went with a, a I think friend. you have to drive on a highway to pass the driver's well, you, test. Just, but not really, just about that. So this was a really long trip for you, and it was, it was quite nerve-wracking for your parents, but you did it. And um, tell us what that was like, and um, what happened afterwards? Like, what was your first first job? You had an internship there. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I I had uh, I I came to LA. I had one internship at Warner Brothers at Akiva Goldsman's company, Weed Road Pictures, and uh, that was a great experience for me. Even though it was unpaid, because you know you get the feeling like you're really working in the industry. You're on the studio a lot and having that experience of getting to go to work every single day um, on the studio a lot is just really uh, special for someone who's been wanting to get to that point uh, a lot of their life. And um, I also got another internship at this time uh, at a place called Echo Lake, which was a management and production company. Um, And so I'd split the week at both of those places. with the support of my parents, uh, I had and the money that I had saved up from the previous job that I had after college, and you know was just sort of hoping to turn that into you know a paying gig at some point. But unfortunately, it's very hard to find that. Um, but I lucked out after a couple of months and and got my foot in the door at a talent agency, which while they don't pay much uh, and they still don't pay much these days, uh, it was enough to uh, support me and keep me going. And uh, that was also at a time when I, you know, thought that I'd be working at a coffee shop to pay the bills. Um, not your favorite thing to do. Not my least favorite mm-hmm. either. But uh, the skills I, because I used to work at Starbucks and the Nordstrom Espresso Bar, uh, they served me well uh, when I was an intern because I knew what the difference was between a, a latte and a cappuccino. <laughs> so um, another interesting thing that happened is. 
um, a number of your friends from your hometown of East Brunswick um, decided to move out there couple of years after you were there. And I think that's really a testament to the kind of friendships that you you have maintained, number one, and number two, how you've really inspired these friends. And they're not all in the business either, I know that. Um, So uh, talk a little bit about that, your friends coming out there, because um, it's very interesting. Yeah, I mean, I had a, a close knit uh, group of friends in in high school, and uh, it's you know I didn't I never at that point in high school considered that I would be moving to California, living in Los Angeles, um, and these are people I'd pretty much grown up with, and we all would always hang out, and you know, from our younger days have sleepovers, and uh, these were some of the the people I even put in my own movies for my, you know, history reports in high school. Um, so I was the first to make it out there and I was lucky enough that, uh, you know, one by one, a few of them kind of followed, uh, in my tracks and, you know, then I, uh, had the same pretty much friend group I had in, in LA and it's kind of changed, uh, right now because, you know, some people have gotten married and some people have, moved away and had kids and had different jobs that they they had to take on. Um, but it's, it's pretty cool to be able to, uh, move to a different place and be around your friends. Sure. And I think, uh, you've got your friends for life. I really do. Um, one friend in particular, uh, proved to be important to you in your career. And that's Dave Rabinowitz, who also grew up in East Brunswick and, uh, went to school with you. And, uh, you did work on some films together and eventually he moved out there and you two became writing partners. So, uh, talk about your writing of various screenplays and how that evolved and how your, your work with Dave began to evolve. Yeah. Well, we were, uh, you know, close in, in high school, especially, uh, we had known each other since like sixth grade and we got really into movies together, uh, in high school. Uh, this was around the time I was working at, uh, Suncoast, the movie store, if anybody remembers that. Um, and, uh, you know, we would always, look at the DVDs of, you know, Tarantino and Oliver Stone, John Carpenter. And we really got into movies around that time. And then uh, a few years later, after I moved to LA and Dave followed me uh, to LA a couple years after that, um, we decided because we had always been uh, sending each other our own scripts that we'd been working on independently uh, and giving each other feedback because uh, we both sort of, you know, were into screenwriting around the same time. So we decided to give it a shot uh, working on something together. And uh, the first thing we worked on together was a, a TV pilot. Um, and that was a, a really good experience. We didn't kill each other. Um, and, uh, you know, we, that got us a couple of meetings with managers and, you know, we decided, you know, let's keep this going. And then the very next thing uh, that we worked on was Black Klansman. Mm. And uh, for those of you, uh, if there are any people out there who haven't seen Black Klansman, 
what a magnificent film, you know. I, I, I tell people um, that at the end, um, I'm, it leaves me in tears. And they say, oh, that's because your son's name is up there on the credits. And I say, well, yes, but it, it had such an impact on me and was such a statement about society today that um, I think its power goes well beyond just you know, a viewing of a film. Um, so I'd like you to go back to those early days when you first came upon the name Ron Stallworth and his book. So um, can you go back and tell us what ha- happened from there and how you came across the name? Yeah, I was, uh, I was doing what I shouldn't have been doing at the time, which was on my uh, Facebook newsfeed, um, scrolling. And uh, I came across a story posted from a former classmate of mine, um, this Vice article um, about Ron and his story. And uh, I read the article and, you know, I thought this, you know, has the makings of a movie. And there was a link to the book. Uh, It was a memoir written by Ron uh, on Kindle. So I ordered the book. I showed the article to my writing partner. We both read his book and then uh, we wanted to get involved somehow we we had an idea of how we wanted to kind of take this to the next level and adapt it into a feature and um we you know we're just sort of stumbling ahead we reached out to the publisher there was an email address in the book jacket it was a you know small time independent publisher the book really wasn't in bookstores luckily and uh that got us a, a phone call with ron's manager um, and then we pretty much just, you know, pitched our vision for a feature adaptation to Ron's manager. We sent uh, a one pager uh, with our vision to he and Ron, and uh, that got us a phone call with Ron. And uh, you know, one thing led to the next, and we essentially got uh, permission from Ron to adapt his book into a script on spec. Okay, so I know that took. A few months. It wasn't kind of an overnight thing. Yeah. I mean, it took, uh, I mean, that was, you know, that, that took like a couple months. If that, uh, everything was moving pretty fast. Okay. So, um, for those people who haven't seen the film, um, just, uh, briefly tell us what, um, the plot of the film is and, um, what, um, why you thought it was something that needed to be out there. I, I mean, it was just one of those stranger than fiction stories. Uh, you know, this uh, black detective uh, who was the first black detective in the Colorado Springs police force. Um, he stumbled across this ad uh, in, in the newspaper um, for, it was a recruit, recruitment ad for the KKK and he decided, uh, you know, as part of his job as a detective, uh, he, he was just going to call the number and, you know, pretend to want to be recruited. And uh, he did that. And all of a sudden, he's asked to meet with the head of the local chapter. Um, and he's got to find uh, a white guy uh, in the police force to go in on the inside pretending to be him. Uh, and that leads them on an investigation where they were able to, you know, learn about a lot of the, you know, nefarious plans the Klan had, uh, but also, you know, 
they were able to prevent cross burnings and um you know th- it put the police one step ahead of the clan especially when david duke ultimately visited uh town and just to have his perspective uh in that story is something that was just uh really kind of unbelievable we knew we we knew people would respond to this story yes it is and it, it was uh quite unbelievable but as you said you know sometimes truth is stranger than fiction um i know um that uh there was some changes made um that you made from the book which i think kind of having read uh the original book and the book that's out there after the film came out um the original book was um read more like a police report and um, there were some changes that you made. One of them is that you made um, the detective who goes out and meets with the Klan. Obviously, Ron himself couldn't do it. You made him um, a Jewish man. And I know, um, as a Jew yourself, um, you have that. You have that perspective. You wanted to to um, get that message out there. Um, about um, you know what discrimination is like in society, not only for people of color, but for um, Jews and for other people as well. So um, why did you make that determination? And can you tell us um, any of the other changes that you made to make it more, uh, the film, more of a drama rather than just a, a copy um, of what was there in the original book? Yeah, well, it was a practical decision more than anything else to make the character um, uh, a flip Jewish because, you know, if your story is going to be cinematic and you're going to be with this character uh, and not the character of Ron for about 50% of the time, if not maybe more, you need to find a way to up the stakes. And by giving that character a personal uh, investment, especially in a, in a personal vendetta against uh, the Klan, it really helps advance that. Mm-hmm. What was the second question again? And how did you make it more dramatic? What other changes did you make in the script? Yeah, we, we, we literalized the, the bomb plot. Um, the Klan uh, in real life would always, you know, talk about uh, doing certain things, uh, you know, bombing gay bars or, you know, thinking of bombing black churches and you know they didn't do this uh in in this particular chapter but you know when ron is listening to these conversations he's taking these very seriously and uh so the bomb plot in the movie is you know it's an extrapolation of all of that it's literalized and we did that mostly because we we thought we these are threats that should be taken seriously and they very well could have happened Mm-hmm. And um, so you did, you had, finally, you had this script, okay? How difficult was it for you to get it in the right hands? I know the story, but, you know, um, living it is one thing. And then when you see it on the screen, you, people think, oh, well, they wrote a script, it got accepted, and boom, it's out there. But it really isn't that easy, is it? Well, it's... uh it's not as hard as it is for most people. I, I think uh, part of the reason is I was a Hollywood assistant uh, for a few years. Uh, I had been, you know, fired a few times, and 
I had a little bit of a Rolodex, but not really a, a huge one. Um, but uh, where serendipity comes in is I was in the same apartment building as uh, one of the producers, uh, Sean Reddick, who I initially pitched this idea to. And um, he used to, you know, do business with one of my previous bosses. And so we, we kind of hit it off and, you know, developed a relationship together. And he at the time was working with a company called QC Entertainment. Um, and they at the time happened to be working uh, on Jordan Peele's directorial debut, Get Out. So, um, you know, it was it was really uh, a good place at a good time uh, for us to be in. Uh, and it's, that doesn't always, you know, work out like that. But still, we had to go in and we had to put together a pitch. We had to pitch QC Entertainment. And, you know, then we had to, you know, we did this bef- while, while we were writing the script. It was first draft, second draft, third draft. Um, after a few drafts, we finally just sent it to them. Uh, they made an offer. They sent it to Jordan. They were filming Get Out at the time. Jordan said he wanted to be involved as a producer at the very least. Um, although in initial conversations, we had him in mind uh, to play the lead character. So we knew that he could either produce, direct, star in, all the above, none of the above. Uh, But once he was locked in as a producer, that's when uh, things started to get moving. Yes, and I'll never forget um, that day when you called us after your meeting uh, with the producers and you were elated and it was just electric. And we somehow knew at that point that um, that would be a turning point for you. And it really, uh, it really was. It really has uh, excelled any of the things that we could have dreamt of for you. Um, I want to take you back, though. You mentioned that you uh, rewrote a lot. Um, how much work is involved in doing that? I mean, and it is work. As a writer, I know that's probably the toughest part of it's not just coming up with an idea, but making those changes and working with a partner also. What's your process? Yeah. Um, well, I think it's important to be hard on yourself and to also listen to criticism of others uh, who may have maybe reading your work and giving you notes. Um, I think I read something on Twitter recently that, uh, the thing, the thing that bad writers don't realize is that by listening to other people, it saves you a lot of time, uh, in making your work really good and not just other people, but also, you know, the voice inside your own head, um, just never thinking that the work is, uh, good enough was really helpful for us and also setting deadlines, um, because keep in mind, we didn't have the rights to this story. And, you know, at any given point, we could have gotten a phone call that said, hey, you know, we've sold the rights to so-and-so and they're going to be finding their own writers. So it was pretty much a race against time for us. And uh, yeah, we, we, we had to be hard on ourselves and set strict deadlines in order to get this uh, moving as fast as possible and, you know, leave as little room for error as possible, you know, on our end so that, you know, no one could say no to this movie. Mm -hmm. And uh, you certainly did accomplish that. Um, So what, um, what was it 
like when you found out that Spike Lee was coming in to direct this? And then um, what was your role once you'd given up the script? I know the answers to that, but there may be some people who want to know. And also, can you tell us about some of the changes Spike Lee then made to the script after it was in his hands? Sure. Yeah, I got a phone call uh, the summer of, uh, I think it was 2017, um, you know, that, you know, guess who's on a plane right now to LA? He read your script and he's all about it, Spike Lee. And I um, I remember calling my writing partner, telling him this news that he didn't really believe me at first because earlier, um, you know, a year or two earlier, we'd kind of joked that, you know, how great would it be if we actually got Spike Lee to do this? <laughs> um, and that was actually happening, um, which is pretty amazing. Uh, but the process was was really uh, simple and, uh, you know, hands off. Once Spike and his writing partner became involved, uh, we sort of just handed off the, the script to them. Uh, they did their thing. You know, we handed off the baton and we came in uh, and, you know, read the shooting draft and gave some notes to the producers on that. And and that was uh, that was pretty much the process. Um, Spike and Kevin... Wilmot, they, you know, they really just made this into a Spike Lee joint. Um, they put uh, a lot of, they infuse the story with a lot of history, um, you know, the and, and a lot of, you know, extra style. The Harry Belafonte sequence, the you know, extended um, Kwame Ture scene, uh, the uh, opening Alec Baldwin scene, um, and Gone the, with the Wind. Yes, and of mm-hmm. course the you know the Charlottesville footage decision to include that at the end um, was all they're doing. Uh, so you know I think they really you know they took what we had, uh, they used it as a blueprint, and uh, they they just made it uh, bigger and more impactful. Yeah, and so such a relevant, such a relevant film for our times. Um, so. I'd like to know, I know how your father and I felt and your brothers felt when award season began and being right in the midst of it and um, just getting one award for this and another award for that and seeing our son's name attached to it. Um, emotionally, what was going on inside of you? It's, you know, getting all these nominations, you know, and, and then finally the Academy Award nomination. So talk about the feelings of that. Uh, I mean, difficult to process, surreal. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's hard to, uh, hard to process seeing your name you know, in the company of so many other names and, you know, like the Coen brothers and Bradley Cooper, um, it's still hard to process. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, 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 it's amazing. I'm, I'm glad that people responded to the film and, uh, you know, this is something that definitely, you know, you know, helps my career. Um, and it's something that like nobody can take away from me. That's true. So now you're Academy Award winner, Charlie Wachtel, which is which is pretty cool, pretty cool. And I'm the mother of, of Academy Award winner, Charlie Wachtel. Questionable. <laughs> so, 
So um, uh, at the Academy Awards, um, I was privileged to be Charlie's date. And uh, Cindy, David's mother, uh, was privileged to be her son's date. And um, we, we met um, many people we never thought we would get a chance to meet, uh, like Elton John, certainly Jordan Peele, and um, Amy Adams. And each one was really nice. And, and that, was, that was good to know. Um, so now we're back at the Academy Awards. What were we in the fifth row, sixth row? We're behind um, Jordan Peele, I, as I recall. We had seen Queen, and we're all kind of holding on to each other uh, in our row. Um, and uh, they announced your name. I think it was Samuel L. Jackson who made the announcement. Yes. Tell us what that was like, that moment. Um. I think, uh, you know, it was just sort of, I don't know, it was, it was surreal. Um, you're just, uh, you, you want to, you want to win, but you also know that if you don't win, it's really doesn't matter at all. Cause you're here. Um, you're at the ceremony and I think you really wanted to win. Though. I mean, yeah, of course you want to <laughs> win. Uh, it, it's, it's nice to win, but even if you don't, it's like whatever um but we won and uh i think at the time i was like you know just four or five drinks deep um from the cocktail bar and you know hoping that i wouldn't have to you know or not sure what i would necessarily say into the mic if i was going to speak which luckily that ended up not being a problem um but i was just sort of you know closing my eyes and I couldn't even really watch the clips that they were playing beforehand because it was just very nerve wracking. We had been waiting most of the show for the category. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they, uh, called my name first and I just remember I sprung up from my chair and, uh, you know, yelled out and punched the air. And, um, it, I feel like at that time I was the only person who knew who had won because nobody knew who my name was, what my name was. <laughs> um, Few of us did. But, you know, in, in that moment when it was silent, I was probably the only one in the building standing. <laughs> yeah, and I recall you, uh, when you went up there, you were pointing at one uh, right at the beginning, and we later asked, who are you pointing to in the audience? Um. I don't know who I was pointing to in the audience. Uh, uh, it it might have been a certain couple. It might have been Alex Rodriguez yeah. and J Lo. Yes. Um, or someone who was watching the telecast on TV. Who I said I'm going to point, and it's going to be to you. But I don't remember who that was. No, I think you were pointing, especially because uh, you've been a Yankee fan uh, from the moment you were born. So uh, it was just exciting all the way around, and. Um, you did get to kiss um, Lady Gaga on the cheek. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> pretty cool. Pretty cool, I think. Afterwards, we had um, the, um, the Vanity Fair party, and which we did not have passes to. We were all in the car. And uh, tell us what happened when we got to the Vanity Fair party. Well, you just show up with, you know, the Oscar statue and you can you know, cut the whole line and 
no one's going to question you and you just sort of, you know, don't have to wait and you just go in and instantly can mingle with everybody in the party. Yeah, and which, again, you know, included people like Trevor Noah, uh, Lady Gaga was there, um, Elton John, a number of recognizable uh, people, Odell Beckham Jr. and so forth. So it was, it was, um, surreal is the only word I can say for it, and we were so proud and happy to be there with you. Um, So... Since then, you've been you've been lauded by various groups. I know you won a Rising Star Award from American University, and you and Dave were um, given uh, the keys to the city in East Brunswick. And you're coming. Um, you will soon get an award from Beyond the Honor Roll for East Brunswick Education Foundation, and that's just here. That's just here in our little locality. But for you. On, and I think I know the answer to this question, but what does winning the Oscar mean to you personally? Um, I wish I had a more deep or thoughtful answer that I think you're looking for. Um, it honestly, doesn't mean too much in the grand scheme of things because I, you know, I just keep it tucked away in a in a locked in a drawer and you know, it doesn't serve me well to just sort of leave that out and remind myself every day because I'm still pretty early in my career. And, and and I got a chance to hold it right when you went, <laughs> when yeah. you left the room, you said, hold on to this mom. And so that was my one big moment. I mean, yeah, it's cool to have one if you're feeling, you know, down on yourself or you're having a, a bad day and, and writing to kind of just look at it and remind yourself that, you know, this is- well what you're capable of. If I if I could venture a guess, I think it's not the statue so much as the doors it's open for you as a writer. Yeah, of course. It's opened a lot of doors, and uh, for the most part, hopefully they stay open. Um, yeah. Yeah, so um, uh, just two more things. Um, first, there are many people, as you know, who can only dream of being in your position. Um, And I'd like to know what advice you have for somebody who wants to write screenplays, wants to be part of all that action. What advice would you give those people? Um, Learn how to take criticism, be hard on yourself, read books, read scripts, always be writing. Um, if you, I mean, if, if you want to do what it is that you want to do, whether it's writing or, you know, being an architect or whatever, you have to actually do it. Um, that's how you get better at it. And, you know, watch movies too. watch movies in genres that you're interested in writing in. And, um, you really know the space of the area that you want to conquer. Is it a good idea for people to move out to L.A. like you did? Um, yes, I think so. Um, I think it's important to, you know, especially if you know what it is that you want. If you want to just, if you're not sure what it is that you want, maybe going to L.A. will help you figure that out. But, um, you know, I think the key is to just focus on on one particular profession 
try not to be, you know, a jack of all trades, master of none, uh, because a lot of people like that come to LA and it, uh, you know, ideally you want to specialize in something. So, uh, just make sure you you go out for the right reasons and not, you know, for the parties and the fame and to be near celebrities. Okay. I think that's very good advice. Um, so one more question for you. What does the future hold for Charlie Wachtel? And within your answer, of course, we'd love to hear about some of the new projects you've been working on. I've heard about them, but I think uh, others would like to as well. And what do you see down the road? Down the road and including right now, it's, you know, just having my hands full and being a, a screenwriter is making a commitment to having endless homework for the rest of your life. So, uh, that's something that I, you know, have slowly been getting used to. Um, but one of one of the projects we're we're working on is a witness protection origin story. It's in, it's a book adaptation uh, based on a book called Animal by Casey Sherman, and uh, it's we're doing kind of like an action thriller take on this story. Uh, it's about this this crazy. Boston hitman Joe Barboza, uh, known as the Animal, who uh, was going to break Omerta and testify against the mob, uh, the New England mob, and uh, to keep him safe, the uh, U.S. Marshals and the FBI uh, they put him on this island called Thatcher Island, which is a mile off the coast of uh, Boston, and uh, they kept him and his wife and his daughter there. Uh, guarded by a, a few marshals until uh, the day of the trial, uh, but then word leaked out in the Boston Globe of the location of Barboza, and the New England mob sent out a few guys with uh, guns and dynamite on a boat uh, to try and kill him before uh, the trial. So that's sort of where our story takes off, and that that is all true. Um, and, and our story is kind of like the action invasion siege thriller take on all of that um we're also we also have another film uh that we're hoping to try and shoot in uh, this upcoming year uh, which is uh a, a spec script that we wrote it was actually the very flat uh the second thing we wrote uh, the first thing we wrote rather after black klansman um and that one's called bolsa negra uh, which means in Cuban slang, black market. And it's uh, inspired by true events and uh, some true stories that we came across. And it's essentially about a uh, a Latino-American baseball agent who hatches a plan to smuggle out Cuba's top baseball player and uh, get him a contract uh, in the major leagues, um, you know, all the while dealing with all of these shady characters in between. Um, and so that one is a, a thriller. It's, it's sort of in the vein of Jerry Maguire and Argo. And uh, we're pretty excited about that. And we're hopefully trying to put it together and get it filmed in 2020. That sounds very exciting. Terrific. Do you um, see yourself continuing to um, write screenplays? Um, do you plan to... Um, direct or anything like that long term yeah i mean i'm gonna be writing um i'll be directing i'll be producing i want to have my own production company 
uh, all of the above. And uh, the Wachtell family will be felling, if you know what that means. Uh, we're just we're just so thrilled. Thank you, Charlie, so much for um, appearing on this episode. You're welcome. Um, we uh, we are so proud of you. We love you a lot, and you are my inspiration. This has been extraordinary people. Thanks for listening to this episode of Extraordinary People. To learn more about Shirley Wachtell. And to subscribe to the show, head to ShirleyWachtel.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Extraordinary People. Extraordinary People.